we continue in worship this morning, would you please uh, turn over, if you will, to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. We've been in uh, this chapter for a little bit. If you've been with us, you're well aware of that. That's a good thing in Jesus' name, right? Yes, I know what you're thinking. We've been making our way through the book of Corinthians and uh, you know, instructions for the church. It's amazing that we come to a place uh, that we could, in one sense, look at this church and go, wow, there's a lot of crazy things going on in, in the Corinthians. You're familiar with this letter. We're kind of left at times scratching our head, right, and thinking, what are these guys thinking? However, it is brand new to them, so we have to extend to them grace because they are learning. They have literally come out from, from pagan uh, religions and uh, false falsities, and, and here they are learning something that is brand new, and they're trying to understand it. So we want to extend them grace. But yet, that aside, it is very uh, wonderful how the Word of God is so relevant every, every uh, soul in every day, right, and all the time. And it's speaking to us, it's speaking to God's church. And, uh, you know, Paul has been f- focused, his last few, this today, and, and the last few messages about corporate worship. You know, when we come together, we are to engage our mind, we are to understand something about who God is, right? So when Jesus begins uh, the New Testament and he's starting his earthly ministry and he says, repent, there's an assumption there, right? That you and I are sinners, well, how do we know? Well, there's... The Old Testament, this thing called the Old Testament, right? And we know that sin entered the world in chapter 3. So we have to understand, you know, corporate worship is to come together and to understand. We see it also as, as balance between our spirit, right? We, we worship God in, our, in spirit and in truth. Our emotions are in line, just as Paul says, I sing with my spirit and my understanding, right? He never separates the two. We have to understand. It strengthens the church and every single one of us is to come and give worship. And so Paul has said, this is what it is. And it's almost like he, he took a step to the left or right. And then he's approaching the same uh, element that he wants to teach, the corporate worship. But he addresses it a little bit different. And he says in verses 20 through 25, uh, speaking of the unbeliever who shows up. Right? And he tells us right out of the gate, the corporate worship service is not for the unbeliever. Right? The whole seeker-sensitive model is, to me, is, is rejected right there. Uh, and he's focusing on saying, look, unbelievers come, but there is, there is there not to, to cater to them. You are to get things in order because you are worshiping the true living God, right? So it is also, though, to the unbelievers, it's a sign. They will assess it, right, was the word I used. Uh, they will walk out and have lunch and go, those people were crazy, right? Or they'll say, you know what, there's something there. We must come back. You know, that's the, and I say that kind of a little tongue-in-cheek, but that's how they responded to Paul, and Paul and Mars Hill in Acts 17, right? He is debating with them, and some said, this, who is this babbler, right? Interjects a different vernacular there. Who's this crazy guy? This guy got a hold of a bunch of crazy pills, right? And they just reject him. Unbelievers, you're not responsible for unbelievers, but they will come, and they will go have lunch afterwards, and they will say, he's, uh, he's crazy, they're crazy. Or they'll say, just as they told Paul, we must hear him again. We must come back to that, that group of believers. There's something about those people. I thought I was going to say crazy people. I didn't, right? 
But Paul's focus through all of this has been instruction. It's been God's word. If we don't come and understand God's word, then, then we don't, we're not left with something. We don't have something to really call upon the Lord to worship him and to trust him. I mean, that's been his foundation. We are to know the word of God. It reminds me of a story that uh, a lady who had come to church in the morning, and as she left the church full of, of excitement of the morning service, she goes home to her house and finds that her house is in the middle of being burglarized. And so she just she sees the burglar, she comes in, she catches him in the act, and she says, freeze, Acts 2.38, which says, right, uh, uh, turn from your sin. But she just quotes that, she goes, Acts 2.38, and the burglar freezes in his stance and doesn't move. So she collects herself a little bit, goes and calls the police and explains everything to the police officer. They show up and they arrest him. Taking the man to the police car, they, they say, uh, why, why did you stop when, when the lady said Acts 2.38, when she quoted scripture, a scripture passage? The man's response was, scripture? I have an Acts in 2.38. Some of you are thinking, don't give up your day job, right? Well, that's not the knowledge we're going after, right? Although it is that it comes in handy for you, by all means. But we are to understand God's word. We're to see it in application, right? And especially in the worship service. You know, the church is God's embassy, heaven's embassy here on earth. And if we don't give something, right, of God's truth uh, to us, to, to strengthen us, encourage us, if we don't give something to the non-believer, well, then really we have nothing to offer them. So continuing in this context of corporate worship, when we assemble together, Paul has these words speaking about really edification. I called uh, this sermon uh, order uh, in corporate worship. Beginning in verse 26 through 33, says this, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophecies speak, oh, excuse me, prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, then all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let me offer a brief prayer. Father, thank you once again for this time. As we turn to your word, uh, Lord, now I ask that your spirit would teach us, uh, would guide us, grow our faith, our conviction, our resolve, our confidence this day. And Father, I always ask, please, get me out of the way, that every thought in life would be fixed upon you. And we commit it to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned earlier, Paul has been coming to this topic of corporate worship. It's a big deal that's going on in the Corinthian church. They've got a lot of different ideas. And coming out clearly from 
uh, the pagan influences, you see some of that making its way into the, the, the assembling of God's people. And it's creating a confusion and chaos. Uh, I don't know about you, regardless of different languages, but I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where there's a whole bunch of people speaking at the same time. That usually leads not to just chaos, but to a quick headache, right? Can you imagine some of the Corinthians going home and saying, man, that, that, that service just wore me out. Where's the Advil, right? I don't think the, the services should do that. Uh, hopefully we're not doing that, but uh, we trust uh, that what God says here is for us. We are to come together. And so my first point, looking at verse 26, is that ordering corporate worship really is for the edification. This has been Paul's, it's been his point, it's been his theme, it's been his drive. And I think it's important for us to grab that word one more time and to see how often Paul focuses on the fact that we should be building each other up. And he says this, right? His, his response, how is it then? He's just come from, you know, here's what happens when the unbeliever comes. And he says in verse 26, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, right? Come together and worship. Each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. And edification means, simply means to build up, or I like uh, one of the uh, dictionaries I have, says to increase the potential of someone, right? So to come together and to have instruction and to increase your understanding, your confidence, right? The Lord uses a lot of things in our life to grow us. On our Saturday morning, men who meet at 7 a.m., the real men who we know, I'm not going to say that, but it is a plug. Men, if you're available, 7 a.m., we're working through James. And trials is one of the things that the Lord uses to test your faith and to grow you. But he also uses the context of corporate worship. When we come together, it is good to hear God's word, even if it's a message that you've heard before, or something you've heard before, or the gospel, a simple gospel proclamation. It encourages us because we know in our spirit, yes, God lives. Yes, he saves lives. It's good. And so uh, Paul is saying when you come, everything, all things, he says, be done for the potential, the growing, the building of our brothers and sisters. So he says, how is it then? Brothers, sisters, right? The brethren word. He has this element of transition. And he says, you guys come together. Uh, you discuss and have this service. But uh, apparently everyone has something to contribute. And it sounds like they're all doing it at the same time. Time. He says, uh, someone has a psalm. And most likely, maybe your Bible translates that hymn or our prayer. Most likely, they were singing an Old Testament psalm, is probably most likely what was happening there. So don't think of the hymns that we have in our hymnal. Um, definitely, they're singing Old Testament passages. He says, someone has a teaching. Right? Someone has some understanding about what one of Paul's previous letters or, or the, the correspondence or what they've heard, and someone's giving that, and someone has a tongue. Someone is, is speaking in another language and saying, Look, you know, listen to me, I've got something to say here. And someone has a revelation. Right? Maybe it's an application element. God is, is, if the gospel means this, then it's something else. Right? And you can see all these things happening. And then he says, someone has an interpretation. You know, that's, this is what this means, this is what you're saying. And, and the idea that he puts it all in the past tense kind of gives us this idea that uh, they've been working on it through the week, right? And coming together with something. And saying, that, man, I can't wait to get to, to church on Sunday. I have something to share. But Paul's point is to say, look, when, when this is going on, you don't have a service that is 
that is in order. You have something that is called chaos, right? And if, if anyone's questioning that, we know that, that verse 33, I mean, hits it solid. God is not a God, right, of confusion. So Paul's saying, look, all these things are, are good, and some of them of themselves, but we can't come together and not have order. There must be structure to the service. We must have understanding, Right? In an American church, it is expected that one would preach, right? And, and prayerfully, he would preach in, in English. Now, I know that's, I can make an Oklahoma joke there, but I'm not, right? It could sound different in different parts of, of the U.S. But the important, the important thing to drive here that Paul has been hounding us, hasn't he, is edification. I mean, this has been his word. It's almost like, hey, how can I weave this word in a bunch of times? Right? How can I weave understanding? I mean, think about it. Right here, edification has been used six times in this chapter up to this point. Understanding has been used six times, uh, maybe in a seventh time, I think, uh, up to this point. Right? So we have this moment of going, Paul, gee, what are you getting at? You know, oftentimes we'll read this passage and say, man, if, if you didn't feel it, well, God didn't move. Paul is saying, if you didn't understand his word, yeah, you didn't get anything. That's his drive, is that you would be built up, that you wouldn't walk out with un, un, uh, unassurance, but with assurance. And this is his, his plan. And so we come to this and say, man, Paul has been driving this point. Up to this. He's been hounding this thing. And I think it's important we, we see that. But why is that so important? You know, I think something here that Paul, uh, you know, working through this is to tell them, you know, this is who God is. The very beginning, he laid the foundation in chapter 1. And God has, he didn't choose the wise and the noble and the mighty people. No, he selected you. And he's desiring to work his wisdom and power in your, your, your weakness and your foolishness. And that power is what? Christ, him crucified. This has been the foundation that Paul continues to build upon. And he's walked this church at this moment. And I believe for us, why is this so important that we come and say on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day and we worship in spirit and in truth with our understanding is that we are in fact, and I think I put this in your notes, worshiping is first and foremost an encounter with the living and holy God. What an honor it is that we get to assemble in the name of Jesus Christ, lift our voices in our lives with all the brokenness and maybe the train wreck of your life you may be feeling this morning. And the Lord's saying, yeah, come, I am with you. I love you know, Luke 18, excuse me, the, the tax collector and the Pharisees, powerful illustration for us. The tax collector is broken. He can't even open his eyes or lift his head to the temple. He beats his chest in brokenness. And the Pharisee is the complete opposite. He's the super fairy, right? He's the super religious guy. And I love in the parable, I know I've said this a few times, that he says, the tax collector, he went home justified. And the Pharisee got reduced to the other guy. His title, even Jesus lowers the title. I think that's just great. Because out of our brokenness, how wonderful it is that we can assemble in the name of Jesus and worship and have God's special presence dwells in his church by his spirit. By his spirit, he guides and endows his church. He communes with his church through his word and through his spirit. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Think of Revelations chapter 2 and 3 where, where Jesus is giving instruction to these churches and saying, look, I'm going to take my lampstand, right? If you don't correct, but the important thing what we want to see is he is there. I walk among you. That's a wonderful thought. We assemble like the Lord walks among us. God loves his church. God has given his son for the church. He has love. He is concerned. He loves his church, right? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. You know, this, this wonderment of the gospel how it brings us together. How we have so many reasons to worship, to call upon this mighty God. I love how Peter says in 1 Peter 2.10 that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, and have not obtained mercy, but have obtained mercy. See, when Paul is instructing them, saying, why is there order? Because when you assemble, the very presence, the special presence of God is with his church. A Sunday morning when we assemble in the name of Jesus, in a special way, God is with us. We need to understand that. That leads us to order in the church. I think there's something else uh, that is assumed here that uh, Paul isn't saying, is the fact that the church must assemble, right? We must come together on the Lord's day. And I know there's, there's times, and I've mentioned this before, there's times, there's exceptions. I get that. And with the COVID, I totally understand that. But it must be a priority of God's people. You have to understand. There's something different about God's people assembling together. There's no substitute for this. You know, because we know each other, and we know the context, and we know what's, what's going on in each other's lives. And when we, we collectively, in one voice, say, God, you're worthy of all our praise. There's edification. The Hebrew writer says this, Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. The day is approaching, isn't it? The wonderful how the psalmist, or excuse me, the Hebrew writer says, stir up love and good works. How do we do that if we're not together? We have to come together. Not forsaking this. So you see Paul coming to this and driving edification. Well, what has to happen? There has to be order. You're worshiping the true living God. And in order for that to happen, the church has to do what? And it has to assemble. Paul is assuming that in the passage. He doesn't say or try to say, hey, you should get together. Clearly, they're getting together. They've got some stuff through the week, and they're coming, right? And they're sharing those things. But he's saying, as you come together, do these things. Worship God. We should be encouraged, right, from a worship service. Now, that doesn't mean we simply have, uh, you know, a therapeutic Jesus. That's very popular in the modern church today, right, and a couple of proof texts. But uh, we should come, and if the Word of God convicts us, 
and challenges us and disciplines us. We know we are his because that is done according to his word. That is good for us. So Paul setting the tone with this church, saying let all things, not some things, not occasionally, not when you feel like it, but let all things be for the building up, for the growing, for the edification, for the potential of the church. So pastors must, right, open the word. We must come and receive, uh, which leads to my next point, instruction. Order in corporate worship is to focus on instruction. Verses 27 through 28, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, he's addressing uh, the brethren here, and he says, let, let there be two, or at least, or excuse me, at the most three, uh, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, if there's no instruction, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. That's a private worship devotion thing. It doesn't belong in the church. But if anyone comes, whether it's in a tongue or he'll eventually talk on prophecy, a proclamation, he says, it must give instruction, otherwise you are to be quiet. It doesn't give insight. Remember in the context here in verse, the last part of verse 26, it is all things done for edification. So clearly in the context of corporate worship. And so what do you have? He says, uh, I don't know if they put these in your notes or not, but uh, A says, uh, only a few should give instruction. He says, let there be only two or at the most three. So right out of the gate, Paul gives some guidelines. You can't have multiple people speaking at the same time. He's given like a pulpit commands, isn't he? Hey, let there be one, and uh, this is when this person can share and when they can't. Right? There should be only a few that give instruction. He says, he goes on to say, each in turn, only one should give instruction at a time. I think Paul is, in, is kind of introducing what we may know as common sense, right? <laughs> Only one at a time. I can imagine, and this isn't there, but you can imagine that some of the Corinthians are going, thank the Lord, I was getting a headache from all our assembling together. All the confusion. Hey, let there be one at a time, one in turn. Let one speak, right? God's truth. And this is consistent with Scripture. God has given, right, apostles and prophets and teachers and then gifts, right? He has given structure to his church. There is a way in which the Lord wants the order of his service, the things to be done. And unfortunately, the, the Corinthians were reflecting more of their, their pagan roots than of a Christian church. And remember, this is the, this is the foundation. This is the birth of the, of the New Testament church. It's coming to formation. And you see really in the New Testament the development of this. This is really the last time, I think verse 39 is the last time the New Testament will mention tongues. There's moving on because it comes to God's word. We today have God's word. I mentioned to our men on Sunday, or excuse me, on Saturday. Okay, it's today's Sunday, right? So on Saturday morning saying, you know, how wonderful as James is writing to those who are dispersed how wonderful it is for us to look at this passage and to realize that if God is testing my faith, he's also he's, he's doing that for the reason to shape me into the image of his son. We can turn over, right, a few pages over to Romans chapter 8 and read that. And the early church maybe or maybe not had all that at the same time as letters were circulating. So for us, we have God's word. It is his truth. And this is how his vehicle, he wants it to be communicated so Paul goes on, he says there, let there be one, in, 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 excuse me, and let one interpret. There needs to be actual, right, instruction, right? Let someone actually interpret this thing so there can be edification, there can be the growing. 
increase the potential of the church, right? Edification. And the last one he says, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Lots of private devotional matter. And so instruction is to be preferred over tongues. Paul puts instruction over, over this gift. It's more important that we, we bring edification, that we bring understanding, that if there's not a translation to that, to that language, then you must keep silent because it doesn't build. It doesn't help. Remember when we talked about the amen, how can I give my amen? I mentioned uh, being at, in, in uh, Mexico and, and attending some services, and occasionally I heard this glory adios. Oh, yeah, glory to God, amen. And then there's, yeah, there's nothing. I got nothing, right? And occasionally you hear Jesus, yes. All right, Jesus and, and Santa, which is holy. Maria, am I right? See, okay, good, right? Amen, right? Santa, Santa, so he's holy God. But beyond that, I'm very limited, right? So it's the same way when we come to this, how is somebody to be edified? Right? How are they to be growing up in instruction and to get knowledge if, if it's done this way? So it's over, right? It's the focus is, is uh, edification, instruction. And Paul has been wonderfully, powerfully consistent here I mean, throughout his letters. You know, it's a very important fact for each of us that the Bible never turns away. If there's ever a disagreement over things, the Bible always goes uh, more into Scripture. There's never a moment in Scripture where it says, uh, we don't understand, all right, well, let's not study that anymore. That was never Paul's mission, passion, none of the writers of the New Testament. It is always, "Let's, let's be patient, let's pray, let's dig harder. That's always the direction of the Bible. It should be the direction of our lives, and clearly we must receive instruction if we're going to have that. So why is this a little bit of application? Why is this important today for the church? Well, unfortunately, there are many who proclaim false instruction today. There are many, unfortunately, who, who are all over uh, in churches and, and uh, TV and whatnot who, who promote a false doctrine. I mean, think of it, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's been, he's been tempted. He's, he started his earthly ministry in, in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And in chapter 7, he's already talking about false teachers, right? He says in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Right? Rhetorical. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. I mean, imagine the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus covers this. Hey, you need to beware. It's not if. Remember, the Bible doesn't assume it. They're there. That's happening. So to contrary or to, to combat that, what should the church be teaching? What it actually means, what scripture actually says. That when we hear false teaching, we say, no, no, no. That's not true to God's word. One of the things we, we like to encourage here is that anytime, whether myself or anyone else is preaching, you have your Bible open, right? In your lap. We get that blessing today. So there are false teachers. The other thing is, uh, all instruction, right? Of course, this falls right into it. It must be 
uh, rooted in Scripture, rooted in God's Word. It must come from God's Word. You must be dogmatic here. This is where, I know I weave it in occasionally, uh, you must have spiritual, right, grit, true grit, right here. As the days, as I mentioned earlier, as the days are going uh, more dark, and, and it's not just anymore that we, that we look upon society and see the brokenness. Unfortunately, bad theology works its way, just as I said, into the church and to many pulpits. And what I be rooted in God's truth is to say it must be rooted in God's objective truth, his word. Anything that is heard, it has to be rooted in his objective truth outside of us. It is God who has spoken. This is his word, and you are to be dogmatic here. You cannot waver here. And I know that sounds harsh, but this is where we, we stand, right? Or we fall. Why is that so important? Because uh, the opposite of objective is subjective. And this is the world that is going upside down. We say, you know, God exists. God is real. Jesus saves. We make those proclamations based upon the truth of God's word. Well, in our society and postmodernism and all these things, well, that has kind of eroded into, well, that's kind of a subjective feeling, a subjective feeling or opinion. That's true for you now, and it's not true for me. And as our society continues to go on and go on, we now have bigger issues regarding this. Now, it's not just subjective opinion. It becomes subjective truth. It's my truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. This is what has led to all the transgender problems in our society. No longer is this God's word reign over all of that. We simply say, no, that's a subjective thing. It's true for you, not for me. Now I, I don't just have this subjective feeling or thought. It has now become my truth. This is what I believe in. It's my truth. It's the political correct. Kind of and then now the, the, the latest what is happening is now that subjective truth, right, opinion, now trumps or is more important is placed above any type of objective truth ever. Displacement or the, the great exchange that is taking place is no longer is God at the center and he is God and this is his word and this is what goes, right? It's now I'm at the center and I'll tell you what goes. How has this worked its way into the pulpit? Well, today we have many pastors who will say, we'll worship God this way. Then how do you get a church that has stormtrooper dancers dancing to a, a secular song? How do we get there? We have seen this great exchange. No longer does God's objective truth reign. It has become a subjective thing. I will say how we worship him. That is the great exchange, and it's a battle that must be fought. You cannot waver here. So when Paul comes to this church and he's simply giving instructions, there's much more to this to say for us today that you cannot waver from the fact that God's objective truth is true, it is real, and we have to come together and say when this book is opened and when it is preached, we hear the words of God. Once that goes away, well, then everything is meaningless. We fall into irrationality. We fall into confusion. Just look at our society. So as the church comes and says, look, there's order, we have to say it remains 
objective. For us as believers, we must reform and conform our lives continually under the authority of God's word. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, chapter 12, verse 3, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what do we mean? It's not simply lip service that sounds good to other believers. It's life service, and it says he's the head of the church, and we're not going to waver here. In the early church, what do we see in worship? They prayed. They they gave instruction from God's word, the apostles' doctrine. They took communion. They had baptism. They sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this is what we see. As a church, when we come together, what do we do? We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We pray. We open God's word. We take communion. We enjoy baptism. That is why we do what we do. This is what it means that Christ is the Lord of the church. And what he says goes. But once we slip here, it's just a matter of, it's a slow erosion, it's a matter of time. So when when Paul comes and says there has to be order, there has to be edification, there has to be instruction, because we, we live in a hard time. Many of us are going through difficult things Many of us are unsure or full of doubt, maybe at times where we're, we're stretched beyond belief or we're broken on the inside and we're doing our best just to make sure no one notices me. And if we can't help you here, if God's word can't help you, then I've got nothing for you. This is why we have to continue to seek God's word, understand his instruction, apply it to our lives. Not only is it good for us, but Paul says something for the church that is wonderful. It's wonderful as he goes on, right? He says, in verses 29, really verse 33, what does he say? God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So the last point is simply this, order, structure in the church. It's not just edification and, and uh, instruction, but it is and will produce peace. That's not a peace as the world gives. It's God's peace. Let two or three prophets, now he switches from tongues to prophets, and he says, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others judge. In other words, what they're saying in line with God's word, right? But if anyone is is uh, reveal to another who sits, sits by, let uh, the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, that all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This is all the excuses. Those who, who conjure up things and say, thus saith the Lord, and has nothing to do with Scripture. He says, that's not true. The spirits speak, right, by the prophets. They're subject to the prophets. For God is not the God of, or the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. With the way carefully what you're going to say. Is it in line with Scripture? Paul is giving us uh, the protocol, right? Here's how we go about this. Here's how we follow this. And when you follow this, and your desire is to see instruction happen or to see the brothers and sisters strengthened and, and a little bit more confident in their faith. And knowing that, you know, Monday's coming and I've got this thing, but I, I know when I call upon my brothers, they will pray because they know God. 
I can face it. I can go forward. I can attach my amen to this and say, yes. Right? When you're increased this way, the Lord sets us up, right? To be a light in a dark world. The church enjoys God's special presence. And when we worship him according to his word, we can expect God's peace. Why? Because he's not a God of disorder. I love how Paul contrasts that. What does Paul immediately do for this church? He just doesn't say, hey, hey I'm, a, I'm an apostle. Here's how you do it, right? He comes and says, no, this is the very character and heart of God. His special presence among, among us is his peace. Now, this is a rhetorical question. Who would like that? All of us. Isn't it wonderful when when Jesus spoke to his disciples getting ready to go to the cross? And there's uncertainty and there's a brokenness of the heart. He's explaining to his disciples, I'm about to go. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to to go die. But he tells them in John 14, he tells them, "Don't, don't worry. My peace I leave with you. And I leave it in a way not as the world leaves it. The world gives to get or has some other motive or whatever. No, that's not how God's peace operates. See, God's peace is his presence. How is there a peace that transcends our, our understanding? It's God's presence in the middle of the storm. How do we get a hold of that peace? You have to know him. You have to have some instruction. You have to know who God is. There has to be, I believe, uh, a growing conviction in God's church. Not a conviction that says we're better than the church down the street or anything like that. Spend, spend a few minutes with us, we realize, yeah, we're, we're broken. But a conviction that says, I, I'm not going to waver here. This is God's truth. And outside of this, there's really no hope. I believe there needs to be some conviction that develops in every single one of us. I love the story of Athanasius in the 4th century who kept going after Arius who was spreading false teaching about the deity of Christ. And it was finally told Athanasius that why are, why are you doing this? Why don't you stop pounding them? At some point, you're going to stand against the world. And his response to that was very so. I stand. I will stand against the world. You fast forward to the Reformation. You have Martin Luther standing at the, at the, the Diet of Worms in front of the council asking him to recant. And he's saying, I will not because I am persuaded that this is in fact the word of God. And I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. And it is said that when he made that statement, that he actually was quivering a little bit because knowing that this is going to, to take his life. And there was somebody in the crowd who said, Doctor, it is enough. So God has his people. He has his church. He's just looking for those who say, here's, here's where I'm standing. I cannot waver here. The church is to assemble, and when we assemble, and the way God wants us to do it, when we come with his instructions, and we desire that our brothers and sisters are strengthened in the faith, we can enjoy God's peace. I don't know about you, but that is completely wonderful. 
In a day like this, in the, in the culture in which we live in this now more than ever, the world needs to know there is an answer to your brokenness. There's an answer to, to the lostness. There's an answer to your confusion. And his name is Jesus. So let us, as a church, have that conviction that we will not waver. We'll always open God's word. We will sing truth. We will pray truth. We'll pray according to his word that we would be strengthened. That the Lord Jesus would plant his lampstand here and be glorified. And let us as his church, as his church and as his children never waver in that devotion and that conviction. Now more than ever, the world needs to see the church shining bright. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, God. Thank you for your mercy that we call upon, often abuse, not fully understanding, God, your patience with us. But Lord, this day, with my brothers and my sisters, I lift, Lord, my voice, I lift my heart, my life, and ask, God, that, that you would be glorified that our devotion and our conviction would be rooted in the truths of your word. And regardless, Lord, this morning where your children are at, I know there's, we're in different places, spiritually different places with situations. I know many of us are going through trials even this day, even at this time. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, strengthen us, encourage us, and realize you're not a God who loves from a distance but you have brought us together for such a time as this. So with confidence, let us turn to your word. And maybe, Lord, as we read and as we seek and as we worship, maybe it's full of tears. But let us hear your voice. Let us be encouraged. Let us be strengthened. Or let us come to the cross. Every single one of us needs Christ. Let us not have pride let us not look down the point of our noses at others, but let us beg them. Beg them to come. Come and believe on Jesus. Let us, Lord, like, like Spurgeon has often said, let us, if there must be people in hell, Lord, let them go with our arms around their legs, begging them to believe, to know real hope, real grace, real mercy. So, Father, as your church, with your people, we are, Lord, your children. Let us be faithful to your word. Let us continue to dig, to seek and understand instruction. Let your Holy Spirit minister and teach us that our worship would grow, our conviction would grow, our faith would grow. Let us realize that your grace for us is unbelievable. It is amazing. And, Father, I do pray that if there's any, any moments of doubt and moments of, of wondering if it's really true, if it's really for me, Father, bring us to the cross. Let us see what our Savior has done. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.